All right, good morning. Welcome to Hope and Anchor once again. I'm excited to open God's Word this morning because I believe when we come uh, in the right attitude, uh, prepared to open God's Word, uh, something inside of us also opens up, that we become receptive and, and uh, available to whatever it is that God wants to do in our lives this morning. I pray that uh, uh, this will be time well spent. But we also come to this moment with the confidence of knowing that uh, the Holy Spirit is at work, even in the, the, the mundane, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, fallible sense that we're just people trying to trying to live and follow after Jesus, we can rely upon God being with us in our midst. Jesus himself said, I'm there with you, guiding you, growing you, giving you eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand uh, the truth of God's word, but also to help you engage uh, rightly in the work of God in the world. And so uh, there's something very uh, supernatural that happens on Sunday mornings when we gather and when we open the Bible and when we start turning our ear, uh, training our attention on that which God might do here among us in us today. So I pray that we'd carry that spirit of expectation with us. Uh, today, guess what? It's the last Sunday of our Everyday People Gideon series. And some are like, I told someone that earlier and they're like, oh, finally. <laughs> I think they were like, finally! I'm so excited. I've been waiting. It's been building to this moment. I think that's what Kyle meant. Uh, he was just like, it's, uh, it's just like building this pressure, this excitement, uh, anticipation. Anyway, uh, today is week, uh, week six, I believe. Um, yeah, and uh, today's message is called Lol Sob. Lol Sob, I'll, I'll explain uh, as we go on. Uh, but let's start with a little exercise. I'll need some feedback, uh, but I'm going to name four people. And this is the one of these people is not like the other game. You remember that one? It's like one of these people is not like the other. Okay. Mother Teresa, Mr. Rogers, St. Francis of Assisi, Muhammad Ali. Mother Teresa. That's a good guess. Okay. There are differences here, but that's not the one I'm looking for. Mother Teresa, Mr. Rogers, St. Francis of Assisi, and Muhammad Ali. Which one of those four is different than the others? I see people mouthing Muhammad Ali. If that's what you're mouthing, you're right. What, what is different as far as how these people are known between Mother Teresa, Mr. Rogers, St. Francis, and Muhammad Ali? Huh? <laughs> Only one of these would say something like, I am the greatest. I am the greatest, not Mr. Rogers, not St. Francis, not Mother Teresa. Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is known for being very uh, upfront about how great he is. About how great he is. Muhammad Ali once quipped uh, famously, I, it's hard to be humble. Why? It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. He actually said these words out loud to other people. It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. <laughs> wow. Now, for most human beings on the planet, saying something like that would seem eye-poppingly uh, conceited and egotistical. But Muhammad Ali was not known for subtlety. He was not known for her subtlety in his skill, but also in his self-conception. He had a pretty robust sense of himself, I guess is a, maybe a nice clinical way to say that. <laughs> he would say this, and it didn't come across as too surprising. You know, people like Muhammad Ali and uh, some of you may be thinking of recent presidents, uh, like Taft, uh, uh, Garfield, I don't know. 
You might be thinking of people like that um, who don't possess the normal restraint or the, uh, the filter that warns against and pro prevents the touting of one's own greatness. You get what I mean? I mean, it's rare, but it happens. You come across people who are like, I don't think they have a self-awareness, or they don't have this filter. They don't have this sense of warning, like, maybe it wouldn't be socially appropriate for me to uh, tell everyone how great I am. While Muhammad Ali could back up his claims with his boxing record, others often make boasts and they make claims of greatness uh, really to compensate. It's to compensate for something. Uh, many of the pompous blowhards, that's a technical term, but uh, many of the pompous blowhards that you know, deep down, they have what's called an inferiority complex. You know what that is? It's like they just don't feel like they measure up in and of themselves. So they compensate by making these claims that are just ludicrous and overblown. They're making up for an, or they have an inferiority complex. They are haunted daily by, a, by um, the sense that they're lacking something. I mean, think about that. Have you ever known someone that's just like way over the top, real quick to tell you how good they are at something or how they're the best at this or that? If you step back, you realize that, man, they've got a deep-seated inferiority complex that they're really trying to overcome by uh, braggadociousness. It's easy to look at Muhammad Ali, or it's easy to look at the loudest voices among the cultural elite, or these multimillionaires that make cameos in Home Alone 2, um, and roll your eyes and dismiss them as egomaniacs, but at the same time, there's a reason we're, we, we're repelled by that. We're guarded against that kind of thing because we recognize it, right? What we see so boldly put out there in our face in others, and we think like, man, I would never do that. At the same time, we're like, but maybe I would. Given the right circumstances, maybe I would be a pompous blowhard. We recognize it. Uh, we understand the impulse at some level. Now, you're not Muhammad Ali. You're not going around saying that stuff. But there are ways that that creeps into our behavior and into our dialogue, correct? Each of us struggles with pride. Each of us struggles with pride at certain times, in certain places, certain situations. We all struggle with pride. We all have to curtail our desire to toot our own horn. To toot our own horn. I remember this isn't in my notes. This may not even apply. But one time when we were younger, Christina, this reminded me of this story. We were introduced to some people. And uh, I don't know why I did this. But they're like, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Springfield, Missouri. Oh, what school did you go to? I went to Kickapoo High School. And it was like... Um, I went to school with Brad Pitt, <laughs> which I didn't really. He was gone before I ever got there, but I went to the same school as Brad Pitt, but I wanted to be like known for something. I wanted to have some connection to like fame or, or, or someone that was handsome. And it's just like, I went to school with Brad Pitt, and it was just like dropped into the conversation at the most ill-fitting time. And my wife kind of looked at me, and the person we were talking to, I don't even remember. I don't think we ever became friends with them uh, after that, but they kind of looked at me like, oh. You know, and then a dog barked in the distance, and uh, a tumbleweed blew through. I was like, well, well see you later. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. I, I felt that need. But anyway, I, I say all that to say this. We all have to curtail this, this desire to toot our own horn, to, to bolster our standing among others, and to be regarded as great in one way or another. We all want to be regarded as 
good at something, as being great at something. Even in our, and here's the thing, and here's the slippery part about humility, right? When you talk about pride and humility, which we're going to do today, so buckle up. But um, we can focus on like, don't be prideful. But then when we turn the corner and say, well, like, be humble, man, we find that's a lot more slippery because humility is tricky. It's tricky. Even our best efforts uh, toward ideals like humility can betray our desire to be well-regarded. We can use our efforts to be humble um, to feed our pride. It's like we, we lock the door, we bolt the door against pride, the front door against pride, but then it sneaks around back and comes in the back door of humility. You know what I mean? Have you ever felt this where it's like, man, if, if my friends only knew how good I was at being humble, if they knew how great I was at this, I mean, I'm like, I've got it dialed in. I'm like the Matthew McConaughey of humble. If people only knew, you know, and that itself then starts to take root. And it's like, oh, I'm prideful about my humility. Is anyone else, am I the only person that struggles with these kind of like overthinking? I don't know. Somehow we can end up striving to be the best at being humble. For me, the most poignant moments of dying to myself uh, in the Christian life, they come when I must stifle the urge to be noticed. When I must stifle that urge to be noticed, to be recognized, to be thanked, to be well regarded, and to be honored for being good and humble. Oh, it's so hard to step out of the, the spotlight when people are like, man, I want to be like you. I love how you live. I want to model my life after yours. Like, you're welcome. You're welcome. I think it's interesting that Jesus himself knows this about us. And so, in one of his teaching times, he, he talks about this very situation. In Matthew chapter 6, he warns us to be careful of pride where? Especially in humble activities. In the practice of our faith, the humble activities like benevolence and prayer, Jesus goes so far as to say, be careful, be on guard, even in, especially in these activities. Look at Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 6. A pretty popular teaching from Jesus, but he says, watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. It's easy to read about the hypocrites or the Pharisees and be like, those weirdos. I mean, who would do that? I mean, who would really stand on the street corners like, I gave to the poor. I sponsored a compassion child. You know, or they would like, God, I thank you. Standing on a street corner, standing up loudly just to pray to be noticed. They'd be like, oh, who does that? Who does that? Well, it's, we do. We do. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have to point this out. He wouldn't have to remind us. And if I'm really honest... I, it would be so great for someone to actually blow the trumpets when I gave my offering. I mean, how weird would that be? But it'd be so great. I mean, blow the trumpets, 
notice me, especially when I'm doing something magnanimous or something kind? Man, did you know that this is a big trap for pastors? Yeah, true story. Falling into this trap of pride being expressed in humility is a giant pitfall for pastors. It's hard for pastors to always do the right thing. It's, always, it's hard for pastors to live faithfully and practice humility Monday through Saturday in relative obscurity. I mean, this is great because you get to see me and I get to talk as if these things are always a reality in my life. I'm just great. Look at me. But you don't see me Monday through Saturday toiling in humility in obscurity, right? Uh, so pastors feel like they need to validate themselves. They need to uh, uh, prove to you that we're worthy to do this thing and to tell you these things. I really want people to know how very much like Mother Teresa I am. I think that's what it boils down to. You should know how much like Mama T I am. In, in reality, just ask my wife. Right? Don't ask my wife. <laughs> While we're comforted in knowing that God uh, notices our good living, and uh, we sometimes uh, find that that's thin consolation. Have you, I mean, most of us can rest because we've, we take the promises of Scripture that God is uh, attentive. He notices. He sees what we do in private. Jesus himself tells us we believe that. But at the same time, we find it's thin consolation sometimes. Sometimes it's just not enough for us. And why is this? Why is it that the uh, notice of God isn't enough. That isn't enough warmth in our spirit. Like, yes, thank you. God, I get to glorify you in all that I do. But it would also be nice if someone noticed, right? Why is God's pleasure in our faithful living not very actually satisfying? I mean, is this a little too close? Is this a little too uncomfortable? I mean, because I think it's true. I think most of us, we had a truth serum injected into our veins. We'd be like, man, do you want to honor God with how you live? You'd say, yes. Do you want to be noticed for it? Also, yes. You know, we, uh, is it because we rarely hear the audible applause from heaven? Uh, we don't uh, hear the roar from the other side. We don't receive uh, spiritual accolades. We don't see doves descending with you know, olive branches in their mouth to land on us and hear this voice booming from heaven, this is my Christian with whom I am well pleased. How great would that be? But it doesn't happen very often. What are we to do when our pride and our desire to be humble collide? What do we do? How do we manage that? How do we navigate that when our pride, which is in there, because of our fallen nature, and it's still in there, this is the daily battle of a Christ follower. What do we do when our pride and our desire to truly be humble collide? Here's what I, I think, and this is from what I get gleaned from Scripture. In this, we must cling to our faith. We must cling to our faith, believing that being lifted up by God, that's the biblical language, that we will be lifted up, that, we'll be lifted, that being lifted up by God, uh, that's what matters most. Ultimately, you will look back on this moment and say, that was indeed enough. That God lifted me up, that God was paying attention, that God noticed, that's what matters the most. Both now and in the future. Whatever it is that Jesus meant to be great in the kingdom, that is what we will discover is of ultimate worth. That will be most satisfying 
at all, uh, of all. That will be most satisfying of all. No one will arrive in heaven. No one will arrive in the new heaven and new earth and be like, is that it? That, that's it? This is it? This is what I did all this for? No, we're all going to be so overwhelmingly filled to the brim, satisfied, that we're, all this is going to make sense. All this is going to fall into place because we will find that it was far surpassing anything we could ask or imagine here and now. When we stand in the presence of the Lord, all of it will be worth it. Thus, uh, this is the life of a Christ follower. Trusting in Jesus, disciplining our impulses, dying to ourselves, taking up our crosses to follow Jesus every day, and continuing that long obedience that leads us on into eternity. It's not fancier than that. Cling to your faith. Trust in Jesus. Discipline those impulses. Die to yourself. These are the images. These are the words Jesus says. You know, take up your cross, follow me, and continue doing that. That long obedience, that daily decision to trust and obey every day, leading on into eternity. So, previously we have spent five fruitful weeks uh, with Gideon in Judges chapter 6 through 8. And today we have one final visit with, with Gideon, with him. As you recall, Gideon, we're focusing on him because he wasn't like, uh, you know, riding in on the white horse, like larger than life. He was just an everyday guy. He was just a normal, everyday person who was doing some abnormal things because he was living in what? Fear. He was afraid. He was living in fear. Uh, now, he might have been timid by nature. I have not seen his Myers-Briggs or his Enneagram, but he might have just been a timid person. He might have been a timid person by nature, but this relentless Midian marauding, the, the marauding and the abuse from the Midianites, it had led him to living uh, skulking, skulking around, living on guard, sneaking. He was skulking around in his day-to-day -day life. He was living in hiding, and this is represented by him threshing his wheat in a wine press. He's doing an abnormal thing, a normal thing in an abnormal place and way, right? But God had called him out and God had used him in remarkable, miraculous ways to demonstrate uh, God's power, but also God's desire to deliver his people once again. God wasn't just acting in power. He was also in doing so reminding Israel, I have not forgotten you. I will raise you up again. I have not forgotten you despite your idolatry and disobedience. By various means, God had convinced Gideon of his presence and his plan. As a result then, Gideon went out in his own strength and courage? No, Gideon went out in God-given courage to lead Israel to witness their enemy's defeat and then enter into a newfound freedom. But, here's the thing, on the, de on the heels of defeating Midian, Gideon faced a challenge. Just like you and I will often face. Gideon faced a challenge. Be exalted by the people of Israel and made king or step aside and glorify God. You'll find that Gideon was put in the spotlight. And he's like, hey, we want you to be king, Gideon. Look at all of the great stuff you've done. And Gideon could have said, okay, okay, lift, let me do that. Let me be your king. Or he could step aside and let all the glory fall upon God. Gideon was to had to confront his desire to be great among the people. Would humility win? 
or would pride win? Would humility or pride win in this battle that was being fought inside of Gideon? Come back next week and find out. Just kidding. Actually, turn to Judges chapter 8. Let's find out together. Judges chapter 8. Let's start in verse 22. This is after the defeat of uh, the Midianites. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. However, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. The enemies, being Ishmaelites, all wore gold earrings. Gladly, they replied. They spread out a cloak, and each one threw in a golden earring he had gathered from the plunder. The weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments and pendants, the purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains around the necks of their camels. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it. And it became a trap for Gideon and his family. This is the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered. Throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years, there was peace in the land. Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. He, was, he had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem, who gave birth to a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon died when he was very old, and he was buried in the grave of his father Joash at Ophrah in the land of the clan of Abiezer. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making Baal Bareth their god. They forgot the Lord their god, who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. Nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, despite all the good he had done for Israel. Man, if you were hoping for like a big, like... Steven Spielberg ending here to the story. It's not quite that way. It's like, oh, again? Again? Israel, what more do you have to see? Who else needs to be sent? Really? Okay, verse 22 and 23. First we read uh, in 22 and 23. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon, Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. So imagine this post-victory scene. There's a lot of energy, a lot of like, yes, finally, finally, no more of this abuse and this marauding, this terribleness that we lived under, uh, under Midian oppression. This post-victory scene had a really promising start, didn't it? Uh, Midian had been vanquished by the power of the Lord. God was being honored. Uh, the people were virtually, I mean, essentially lifting Gideon onto their shoulders and parading him around. This guy is great. Gideon is awesome. He is the number one. We love Gideon. Gideon should be king. Because Gideon had so stunningly delivered Israel, they wanted to make him, his son, and his grandson their ruler. Basically, they didn't say, hey, Gideon, we want you to be king. They said, we want you to establish a dynasty. Whatever you've got, we want it for generations to come. We want your son, your grandson, we want them all to be king. We want to establish a dynasty here, the Gideonite dynasty, whatever we'd call it. But Gideon, acting in genuine humility, I think, he recognized that it was God's power and it was God's activity that rescued Israel, not him. 
Thus, he demurs, he, he declines, he steps out of the spotlight and he says, I will not rule over you. Why? Because God is the true ruler of Israel. He is the true deliverer of Israel, not me. Recognizing what God had done, Gideon refuses to claim the glory. Good move, Gideon. But something else was going on inside of his heart. Secretly in his heart, he still harbored a desire to be great, a desire to be noticed in some form or fashion. Let's look at uh, verse 24 through 27. However, Gideon said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your plunder you collected from your fallen enemies, the enemies being Ishmaelites, who all wore gold earrings. Gladly, they replied, they spread out the cloak, a cloak, and each one threw in a gold earring uh, he had gathered from the plunder. The weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments and pendants and the purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian or the chains around the necks of their camels. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, the ephod, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. So Gideon said, okay, uh, I don't want to be king. I don't want the glory for this. However, I would like an earring. I'd like a gold earring. Why? Well, I want to make an ephod. Um, he instructed the people to contribute one golden earring each from the plunder of Midian, and it, it, it weighed over 40 pounds, all the collected earrings. With this, this golden booty, which is a pirate term, Gideon made what's called a sacred ephod. Does everyone know what an ephod is? Uh, it is like an, an apron-like garment that the priests would wear. It's a priestly garment that has a, a breast piece, and this breast piece was made out of gold. And it was reminiscent of something. Every Israelite that would see it would remember and would recognize like, oh, this is like the priests at the temple. This is like what the priests would wear in performing their sacerdotal duties at the, at the temple between Israel and God. They would mediate and they would wear this priestly garment, this ephod. Uh, so what, what we see going on here is while Gideon was humble on the front end, a strange attitude, a sort of pride seems to sneak in the back door to claim some of the notoriety and some of the acclaim. Gideon desires to exercise a form of spiritual authority over Israel. I don't want to be king, but I do want to be priest. I want to be priest. I want to have a say in how you have uh, interaction with God. Uh, the Expositor's Bible Commentary explains the situation this way. Gideon seemed to have wrongly assumed priestly functions. He had stepped into a priestly function. The ephod eventually served not, uh, it was not a means to facilitate worship of God. It became an idolatrous purpose in and of itself. It became an idol in and of itself. It eventually served an idolatrous purpose. Gideon, who had boldly broken up his father's altar to Baal, had now created another idol and set a trap for his own family. Almost immediately after crafting the ephod, Israel became distracted and they chose to worship the ephod itself. They had once again fallen into that time-worn idolatry. What in the world? I mean, it's easy to look and think, oh my goodness, what is going on in Israel? They're like, yeah, ooh, the ephod, let's worship that. Let's worship the ephod. You know, after they'd seen all that God did, you know, they're like, oh man, that's a pretty nice ephod. What if we worship that instead? 
And they do. It's crazy. Uh, pick it up in verse 28. This is the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered. Throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years, there was peace in the land. Then uh, Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. He had 70 sons born to him, for he had many wives. He had a concubine in Shechem, who gave him a birth, uh, a son named Abimelech. Gideon died when he was very old, and he was buried in the grave of his father, Joash, at Ophrah, in the land of the clan of Abiezer. As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves. What language there? They prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, making Baal beareth their God. I don't do that very often, but man, that lays it bare when I say, when I'm worshiping something that is not God, I am prostituting myself. I'm selling myself in the worship of, of a lesser God, of a lesser desire. Yuck. Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal. They forgot the Lord their God who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them, nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, despite all the good he had done for Israel. Now, some good things are happening here. There's peace in the land. Peace prevailed during the remaining years of Gideon's life. Uh, shortly after his death, though, Israel moved on from the worship of the ephod back to full-tilt worship of Baal. They're like, man, the ephod was nice. Thanks, Gideon. We'll go back to Baal now. We'll go back to worshiping Baal. The very idol, that very false god that incited God's anger originally and brought Midianite affliction upon them for seven terrible years, in short order, it's all reinstated. How tragic is this? How quickly we forget. Baal worship is reinstated. This is the very reason why those seven terrible years had happened. Baal is worshiped once again as God among the people of Israel. Like a sad epitaph to Gideon's life, a monument to pride and idolatry, we read in verse 34, they forgot the Lord their God who rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. They forgot. They forgot. Something about our idolatry begins with forgetfulness. They forgot somehow all that God had done for them, and they returned to their worship of Baal. They returned to their idolatry. They forgot the Lord their God who rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them. Because Gideon in Israel was unwilling to fully uproot the idolatry and to put to death all the pride and the desire for greatness, all its wicked fruit blossomed once again. That like a noxious weed, it overtook God's people once again because it was not fully eradicated. Gideon failed to forsake his need for recognition. He failed to die to himself. And as a result, the scriptures tell us he set a trap for his family. And into that trap, all Israel fell. Uh, Israel failed to forsake their desire for Baal. Uh, their desire for idolatry, and they ended up in sin, forgetting God and even forgetting Gideon. They even forgot Gideon and his family after he died. Uh, this is where I want to talk about that technical term I mentioned at the beginning. I think uh, the word here is lol sobbing. Has anyone ever heard this phrase or this term before? Lol sobbing. It's a combination of LOL, lol, and sobbing. Laugh out loud while sobbing. Okay, the situation makes us want to lol sob. Right, like, oh, no, Israel, again, seriously, seriously, really? 
This is where the observer is both laughing and crying because the scene is what? It's both comically predictable, yet at the same time very, very sad. And if this isn't a predictable yet sad scene, I don't know what, what page to direct you to in the Bible, but this is pretty much a definition of lolsob. This is like comically predictable, yet very sad. That being said, I think God, above all, is sitting there and he's lolsobbing, watching as Israel unravels once again. Goes trailing off in idolatry, going back again, prostituting herself to Baal, seeing Israel forget and forsake him and to pursue their own greatness and to set up once again on the high places the worship of idols and in doing so crafting their own oppression and their own ruin. They're setting themselves up for more suffering, more subjugation, more oppression, more pain, and more death. Lalsab. Despite all that Gideon did in Israel, it was all soon forgotten. It was all soon abandoned. So we have a vantage point that we can really sit in and look back on this story and ask, how could this story have ended differently? How could this story have ended differently if Gideon had consciously chosen to die to himself when tempted to make the ephod? If he stepped back, not just from the spotlight uh, when he declined to be made king, what if he also said, you know what, I'm not going to make an ephod. I'm not going to collect the gold and make this ephod that become, became a god. What, what if he said, I'm not going to step into the spotlight and take any of the glory from God. I'm not going to usurp God's place and his honor here. You see, this, this, this stuff happens, like, like when Moses strikes the rock in anger, taking matters into his own hands, or Gideon crafting this ephod uh, in pride. We too must be careful. We must be careful in letting our desires get in the way, letting our selfish uh, desires creep in the back door. The path of following Jesus, it requires a daily commitment to examine our motives. Can I implore you to do that? Each day, examine your motives. Humbly lay your whole life before the Lord and be quick to repent of any wicked ways that are discovered in you. This is one of the works of the Holy Spirit in you, searching you and knowing you, checking out your life and bringing those things to your attention that you might repent of them and offer them up to God, laying your whole life before Him. That is not something that Israel was willing to do. That is not something that Gideon was willing to do. But today is our chance. This week, it's our chance. Will we lay our life before the Lord? Will we offer up our motives to God and let them be transformed, to be redeemed? That's the choice we have to make. I'd like to close today with a meditation. I'd like to look to one of the Psalms. I'd like to read the words of the psalmist and in those words find our own words, okay? So I'm going to read from Psalm 139 and I'd just like you to close your eyes. Make these words your words. O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I am far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. 
You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship, it's marvelous. How, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious, how precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God? They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, you are still with me. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the paths, the path of everlasting life. Amen. Father, we come to you acknowledging your greatness and your worthiness of all praise and power and glory and honor. And at the same time also acknowledging our, our fickleness and our, our inconsistency. How easily we are led astray. How quickly we turn sometimes from the worship of you uh, and turn our attention and our affection instead to the, the golden ephod or the, the idol that we've crafted in our life. God, what we see Israel doing in the Old Testament, um, it's not unique. It's, it's human behavior. It's not Israel behavior. It's human behavior. This is just how we are. And God, this has to really break your heart. How compassionate and good you were to come after seven years and bring deliverance, to have not forgotten Israel, to set them free, to, 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 to cast off the Midianite oppressors and to, to let Israel uh, move into a good and, and, and healed future, only to find them so quickly turning again to the idolatry, to the Baal, that which brought them such hardship, such difficulty, such fear. God, help us recognize that in our own selves, our, our own idolatry, our sin, but also our pride. This struggle we have with truly being humble, truly uh, training our hearts upon you. God, it's hard for us to die to ourselves. I think this is why Jesus brings it up and makes such a point. We've got to die to ourselves. That the, the life spent following after Jesus, it's taking up our cross to die so that we might live. So. God, I pray that you'd work the truth of uh, your word into our heart, what we see in Gideon's story and Israel's story, but also in the teachings of Jesus, what we've experienced in our own lives. I pray that you bring all these things together so that we would be more and more um, committed to obedience because we believe that, that obedience leads to life and to freedom, that there is a, a right way forward for us and that you've uh, equipped us, enabled us, empowered us to live in that way. So God, be with us, I pray. 
Some of my friends here may be sitting here struggling, feeling like they're just a, 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 a wreck. They just can't get this right. They feel so drawn aside by these persistent idols or, or besetting sins. But God, you're faithful, just like you didn't forget Israel. You've not forgotten us. I pray that you'd do a powerful work in us. Give us the strength, the courage, the commitment to follow after you and to uproot, fully uproot, the wickedness, the idolatry, the appetite for sin that, that persists in us, God. We offer this up to you. God, teach us, help us lay our whole lives before you. Search us and know us. God, our anxious thoughts our wrong thinking, our selfish thinking, our prideful thinking. God, I lay all that before you so that you might transform it. Lord, be at work in this place, I ask in Jesus' name. We're going to worship a bit more, and uh, this is a great opportunity to pray, to sit with the Lord, to ask. Pray with the psalmist. I'd encourage you to turn to Psalm 139 and just pray uh, in this moment while we sing. Pray. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Search me. Make the psalmist prayer your prayer. Make his song your song. But the thing is, we have opportunity to sit with the very, in the pre very presence of the Lord right now. So please make the most of this opportunity.